Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Hello and welcome to another episode of This Week in Clean Tech, a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in almost 15 minutes or less. Today is Friday, September 1st, 2023. I'm Renewable Energy World Senior Content Director John Ingle. Nicola Groom from Reuters will be joining us shortly, but for now, I'm joined by clean tech PR veteran Mike Casey of Tigercom. Hey, Mike. Hello, Mr. Engel. Greetings from my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. How are you, sir? I'm good. I am in midst of um, working out my schedule for RE Plus and getting more and more anxious every day with the escaping minutes and how little of time I have left. What about you? You're not kidding, man. Absolutely. Same thing. Yep. Send your reception invites over to me, too. I'm ranking them based on how I should prioritize (laughs) my time. The best one, the best spread gets uh gets an appearance from me i can't um, believe you're using our show to to pad your social calendar mr angle this is a first but hey listen fine i'm in trade media now not uh, mainstream <laughs> journalism so like kickbacks here and there like slice of pizza stuff i don't have to turn that down like nicola does so uh, feel free to, to give me a call um okay. <laughs> remember we want you to be part of this show as well so nominate those stories that caught your eye each week by emailing this week in clean tech at tigercom.us and we'll have a link in the episode description as well mike kick us off number one story we have one written by cnbc's jennifer elias titled google to begin selling maps data to companies building solar products hopes to generate 100 million in the first year i think that headline is pretty self-explanatory but john Give me your thoughts on this. Yeah, it's cool. Um, A really interesting step by Google to monetize Project Sunroof, which I think launched in 2015. And at first glance, I wondered, you know, what the potential disruption would be to those, uh, you know, tech service providers already in the solar space. But I would imagine that this data set and AI technology that Google is rolling out will really just enhance what they're working on. I hope that's the case. Um, No one has a data set like Google and using maps and all of these different tools that they already have to help solar, I think, is net positive. I see this as part of a trend of more companies from outside clean economy beginning to stick their toes in the water. Now, Google is a little different. They were one of the main drivers and launchers of the direct corporate buying trend, and they've stayed in the lead. And here they are uh, deciding to assist the the space with new mapping uh, data. And the software is very cool. It can take Google Maps data to 3D model a home, et cetera. Um, they're predicting it's going to generate $100 million in revenue in its first year. What's for sure is if a company of Google size is going to get in the pool, everybody who's already in it is going to get a little wet. So I think we're going to see some really interesting things happen because of this move. John, what's our second story? All right. Story number two is from Caroline Eggers from Nashville's local news and NPR station WPLN News. 
The headline is Tennessee secured $7 billion in clean energy business uh, throughout the last year, representing nearly 80% of new investments. So that's discussing one of America's leading states in clean tech manufacturing, Tennessee, of all places. Mike, what did you think? I think this is Exhibit A and one of the ironies of the clean energy transition here in the U.S. Red states send politicians to Congress who reliably vote against clean energy. They get outvoted. And then clean energy benefits flow to red states. So here's Ruby Red Tennessee with over $7 billion in 14 projects represents nearly 80% of all the capital investments and a third of all the job announcements in the past year. I think there's evidence that these outside benefits that are going to states um, are beginning to win voters' hearts and minds. It's up to clean tech government affairs to ensure that politicians' hearts and minds follow. And that remains to be seen. John, what did you think? Yeah, I for one think this is just the kind of exact messaging that we need across the country, and especially in those Republican states and districts that you talked about. And there are a number of organizations and advocacy groups that are putting out the data of here's the investment, here's where the investment is going. But I think getting to that local news level is is a huge advantage, especially heading into an election cycle. Anthony Robledo from USA Today has got our third story. He reported that MSG Sphere announces a plan to power 70% of Las Vegas Arena with renewable energy pending approval. This is a 25-year agreement with NV Energy to offer the highest amount of solar to the venue. John, what do you think? Yeah, the reason I suggested we cover this story this week, it's clickable one. So, I mean, it's a good headline. But I, I wanted to talk about this because similar to the story last week with the Dulles Airport and that massive renewable energy project, I think this is one of those examples where clean energy gets kind of, you know, right in front of the general public and where they may not see that large solar farm that's, um, you know, some miles away or the batteries that are helping support this. Just the fact that the sphere can then point to most of our power is coming from renewable energy and they're going to you know pick up the remaining share with credits i think that's a positive message to to share about a project that is clearly a you know a huge energy suck what did you think i think that this is a very interesting plot twist. It's worth noting that in 2015, this is the same utility that engineered what became known as the Christmas Eve massacre that gutted solar net metering. That decision was overturned in the months that followed because of a a huge public outcry. And here we are with NV Energy that's leading on this project. To me, this is another anecdote of major investor-owned utilities continuing to adjust their relationship to a much more friendly one with clean energy. John, what's our fourth story? Yeah, our our fourth story comes from Canary Media. Chemical fertilizer is a climate disaster. Can high-tech biology fix it? It's about a more sustainable nitrogen delivery system for crops. Mike, what did you think? Uh, First, I think Michael Grunwald has done some of the most important environmental reporting I've read or worked on in the last 20 years. So I admit I'm a little biased here, but I think... Why is this story important? Chemical fertilizer, starting in the 1970s Green Revolution, produced huge benefits in terms of crop yields, but they came with massive pollution downsides, including growing dead zones at the mouth of major rivers. So this new approach is going to use genetically modified microbes to pull nitrogen out of the air, which I think is so cool. And they've already done this um, to 5 million acres of farmland last year. Pivot, the company here, says their product can replace 20% of a cornfield's fertilizer without reducing yields. That's a big deal. Yeah, I agree. And this is more in your wheelhouse, and I think you pretty well covered the story there. But I did love this line from Michael. The quote is, the farming challenge of the 21st century will be to keep feeding the world without frying the world. 
I love that. He notes that uh, it'll require at least 50% more food production and 75% fewer agriculture emissions to get there. Mike, what's our last one? Uh, this is a Reuters story by Nicola Groom. First U.S. offshore wind auction in Gulf of Mexico attracts paltry interest, which reports the underwhelming results of the first lease in the Gulf, the, which was the site of the disastrous Deepwater Horizon oil spill over a decade ago. John, what are your thoughts? Yeah, going into this, the you know the trade groups, advocacy groups did caution that this would not be the auction that resembles like New York Bite or or others in the Northeast. It wouldn't get to that multi-billion dollar threshold. But I, I do still think this was a, a bit of a flop and a little underwhelming. So really interested to hear from Nicola on, you know, some of the insights that she's found through through her reporting on this. But Mike, what did you think? I think the Gulf is a tough place to put a wind farm. The wind is not as strong. The regulations aren't clear. The cost is high. But, you know, there's also the complications of abandoned pipelines because, of course, even with 150 years of maturity, we still don't have the oil companies paying their own way. We we help them uh, with with a uh, a government allowance uh, to make this work, I think government's got to emphasize removing unused infrastructure and halt new oil and gas permits and get serious about offshore wind. All right, with that, Nicola Groom, welcome to hey guys, uh, this week in for clean tech. Me. Nicola, tell us about what drew you to this story, and for people who perhaps haven't read it yet, what are the really big takeaways that they should um, they should have? When well, they, uh, as you when know, offshore it. wind is a huge part of the Biden administration's uh, decarbonization agenda, and uh, they have been uh, champions of this industry since Biden took office in 2021, uh, set a very ambitious goal of deploying 30 gigawatts of offshore wind along every U.S. coastline by 2030. So expanding this industry to the Gulf of Mexico um, was a big deal and uh, was a uh, you know, uh, touted by the president a few weeks ago um, as a big milestone for uh, the offshore wind industry. So that made this story um, just, you know, really interesting, especially because the Gulf, as you know, is a you know a major oil and gas hub uh, globally. Um, and, you know, offshore wind uh, auctions have been very successful in the Northeast of the United States. So uh, it was, um, there were a lot of eyes on this sale in terms of people just kind of wondering how it would pan out. And uh, I think it was uh, less successful than um, many people expected, uh, though I'm not sure anybody thought it was going to be a runaway success, as John mentioned. Um, And there are a few reasons for that. You know, one is the low wind speeds, but the primary thing that I hear is, you know, the lack of state support for um, offshore wind. Uh, In the Northeast, states like New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts have uh, laws in place mandating utilities to procure offshore wind. And, uh, you know, states like Louisiana and Texas don't have that. Uh, Louisiana has a five gigawatt target, but that's not a mandate. So um, the one lease that did sell uh, was the lease that's closest to uh, Louisiana, and 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 there's a there's a reason for that. It's because the state has shown some support for it, uh, but the two leases off the coast of Texas uh, got no bids. 
That's a good point. I, I'd like to go a little inside baseball with this because, Nicola, you've covered a lot of offshore wind over the last you know couple of years. So I imagine that you were tasked with following this auction from the from the very beginning when it started at 9 a.m. and you're clicking refresh every hour. And I, I think I mentioned it in my reporting, you did as well, that um, you know two hours in after two rounds, it's just over. And you're, you're kind of squinting and, and wondering, is, is that it? Did it really go that fast? The New York auction that I mentioned took days. It was like 64 rounds to complete. Um, so kind of interested if you were surprised by that, just given that we did have some heavy hitters as those approved bidders that were supposed yeah, to be part of this process. Yeah, I have to say, I was, really, I was really stunned. Um, like you, I was like, wait, it's over? Um, because, you know, even, you know, the New York Bite auction did last yeah. for days. Um, but, you know, the California auction, for instance, you know, it, it wasn't really a runaway success, but it did take all day and, you know, kind of the bids moved up, you know, slowly. Um, so I sort of expected it to be like that. Um, and then, you know, two rounds in, this auction is over, zero bids on two of the leases was quite surprising, given that, you know, 15 companies had qualified to bid and they they were all the heavy hitters um, that we've seen at auctions before, Total, um, RWE, which was the one company mm-hmm. that did win um, the lease, um, you know, Avangrid, uh, Shell, um, you know, Shell had had filed comments saying that they were uh, really interested in developing uh, in the possibilities of offshore wind in the Gulf to develop uh, green hydrogen. So, um, you know, Equinor also, I, I, was, I was pretty surprised. <laughs> Just to jump in again, Mike, as a, a follow-up to that, you mentioned the green hydrogen piece, Nicola, which I think is important. That was one of the intrigues about the whole Gulf, Gulf of Mexico offshore wind prospect. And even some like Houston private equity firms were approved bidders and some other people that haven't really played in this space. Right. Hanwha Q-Cells USA was an approved bidder, the solar manufacturer. Like there, there was interest and um, just interested that so many sat on the sidelines. And I've been trying to to reach out to those developers directly to see kind of who bid and and why didn't they bid if 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 they didn't get involved have you been able to pull any of that out yet yeah total did uh, talk to us afterwards and said that they had analyzed the uh, market and and just felt that it wasn't you know, it wasn't right for them at this time. Um, and, you know, it was one thing that was interesting to me is um, the, the concerns really were specific to the Gulf, the low, the low wind speeds, the lack of state support, um, et cetera. You know, we've seen a lot of other challenges with offshore wind in the last um, couple of months here in the U.S. with uh, folks trying to renegotiate contracts in the Northeast due to cost inflation. And, you know, those really weren't the reasons that people gave. People gave the reasons that the, the Gulf market in and of itself just isn't quite ready yet. <clears throat> Nicola, I've got a question for you. I know that in some of our work on offshore wind in the past, one of the big things that people pointed to was that the stake that the Gulf states could have in deploying parts of the supply chain for oil and gas on building out U.S. offshore wind. Did you, so to my, from my perspective, this is a little bit of a missed opportunity in, to really bring home the benefits to the to Gulf states of Gulf state supply chain 
presence. And I wondered if that factored at all into the thinking or the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you talk to people about uh, offshore wind in the Gulf, uh, they will say the primary, um, one of the good things about it is the uh, existing infrastructure along the Gulf and that it, that, you know, they weren't worried about building new ports and, and things like that, 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 that is happening on the, in the Northeast. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of um, support, at least in Louisiana. Uh, I, you know, I think some of the local uh, economic development agencies, et cetera, were very excited about this um, possibility of, of offshore wind to produce green hydrogen, to provide power to the industrial um, customers that sit along the coastline. Um so and you know to to bring more jobs to the region. So I I, I would imagine I haven't spoke spoken to folks since the auction. I would imagine that there's there may be some disappointment, but at the same time they do have that. There is a lease now. There is a lease held off the coast of Louisiana, um, and it will be up to RWE to to develop that lease and figure out what they're going to do with it. John Engel, we are just about out of time. I want to give a shout out to our ter- terrific producer, Brian Mendez, and to Alex Peterson and Claire Quirin for helping us identify this week's top stories. Yeah, and big thanks to Nicola Groom from Reuters for joining us on this week of this, uh, this episode, excuse me, of This Week in Clean Tech. Please subscribe, give us feedback, and share your story suggestions. And you can read all of those articles we discussed this week by clicking the links in the episode description. Factor this on Monday, we're talking about permitting and interconnection reform efforts so you don't want to miss that one mike see you next time and see you at re plus in a couple weeks yes sir have a good weekend nicola thank you good to see you again thanks guys take care take care Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the Interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.